Okay, good evening. Welcome to Catholic Education Class. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, we ask you to open up our minds and our hearts so we might know the truth, love the truth, and live the truth every day of our life. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're on uh, Catholic history tonight. And uh, we left off on page 123. There are more books downstairs. The Inquisition controlled the minds of Catholics by creating an index of forbidden books. That's the, the charge, that's the myth. Let's take a look at it. Page 123 of uh, Steve Wiedenkopf's book, The Real Story of Catholic History. The Acts of the Apostles records a curious incident in the missionary travels of St. Paul. While in Ephesus, Paul witnessed a group of believers confess their former practice of pagan and demonic magic arts and proceed to burn their valuable books in his presence. Book burning, contrary to popular belief, was not practiced solely by the Catholic Church or Nazi Germany. Indeed, it was practiced in the ancient pagan world and among the Jewish people. Sometimes it was instigated by the mob and other times it was commanded by the state. In the 4th century, Constantine ordered the works of Porphyry, the 3rd century pagan critic of the faith, to be burned. During the 16th century, book burning was one method utilized by church and state authorities to get rid of heretical works that threaten the souls of the faithful and the safety and security of Christendom. For instance, in his 1520 bull, Pope Leo X, who reigned from 1513 to 1521, condemned 41 teachings of Martin Luther and ordered his writings burned to safeguard the faithful. Luther responded with the treatise against the execrable bull of Antichrist, and by hosting a bonfire in Wittenberg where he burned copies of Leo's bull, canon law, and works of scholastic theology. So uh, it was on both sides of the aisle here. Another mention, another method used by both church and state to suppress heresy was to examine their contents either before or after publication, and if necessary, prohibit them from being published, read, or reprinted. This practice did not begin in the Middle Ages, nor did it originate with the Inquisition. The Council of Nicaea in 325 condemned Arius's heretical teachings about Jesus and ordered his book, Thalia, to be burned. Pope Innocent I, who ruled from 401 to 417, 
attempted the first catalog of forbidden books when he listed several Gnostic and apocryphal works in a 405 letter. The early church warned the faithful against reading Gnostic works and forged books containing accounts of martyrdom as well. Because books were few and literacy rare in medieval times, the church itself did not pay much attention to what was being written. Instead, it was the universities which concerned themselves with ensuring that published material was orthodox by requiring professors to submit lectures intended for publication for review by the chancellor and the theology faculty. Some bishops, mostly in Germany, passed diocesan laws of censorship in the 15th century. It was not until the advent of the printing press that church authorities began reviewing books prior to publication and creating lists of prohibited books. Recognizing the potential of the printing press to spread heresy widely and rapidly, Pope Innocent VIII, who ruled from 1484 to 1492, issued a bull in 1487 calling for the censorship of dangerous books and charging local bishops with oversight of printers and booksellers. Innocent's bull was reinforced in 1515 when Pope Leo X issued the bull requiring bishops to examine books either personally or through the appointment of a censor deputatus. Printers who printed banned books could face fines and excommunication and see their entire inventory cast into flames. By the mid-15th century, censorship had become the work of universities as well, with both the University of Paris and the Louvain producing lists of forbidden books. The Spanish Inquisition arrived late to book censorship. The first list of prohibited books appeared in Spain in 1551 more than 70 years after the Inquisition was inaugurated. Moreover, that first list was merely a reprint of the 1550 list from the University of Louvain with a special index of Spanish books. It was distributed to the various tribunals with authorization to add works to the list as appropriate. The discovery of Protestants residing secretly in Spain in 1558 spurred the Inquisition to compile a comprehensive list of forbidden books, which it published in 1559. It listed 700 works, most of them by Protestants or unauthorized scripture translations. You know, I'll just say a word here. The church has always had to guard the scripture. Anybody can write 
the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke or whatever uh, in any fashion they want. And if they want to change things around, who's to know the difference? And uh, so the church always has to say that this particular version of Scripture that people are reading has the um, imprimatur of a local bishop. It's, it's got the uh, approval of the church. And believe me, there are people constantly trying to change the Scriptures. They want to rewrite it. I mean, that's what uh, Charles Russell did. Uh, for the Jehovah Witnesses. In the late 1800s, he simply made his own version of the Bible. He made his own version of the New Testament. And everywhere where it indicated that Jesus was divine, he just rewrote it. Because he didn't think Jesus was divine, so he rewrote it to fit his own standards. So when the Jehovah Witness comes to your door and he's got his New World Translation... That Bible, you know, is not a real Bible at all. It's a fake Bible. A lot like CNN News. I mean, it's fake news. Uh, I guess since it's gospel, you could call it fake good news. <laughs> gospel means good news, fake good news. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've heard Steve Ray say he takes, uh, he goes to, you know, thrift stores and he sees a he sees a new world translation bible he buys it so he can take it home and burn it you know because that's the only thing it's fit for it is not the true word of god and to let that fall into hands of someone is to let heresy fall into their hands okay how does the church feel about protestant bibles are they not as bad or are they just well uh some translations are probably not very good, and some translations are very good. Okay. Depends on the scholarship that went into it. Okay. And um, so, the church has always had to guard against people trying to change the scripture. Okay, we're back on page 125. Interestingly, the 1559 list was focused on keeping out of Spain books that had, for the most part, never entered the country. Unfortunately, a too strict vigilance against heresy prevented some innovative yet orthodox works from being published. Among them, St. Ignatius of Loyola's Spiritual Exercises. The Spanish Inquisition revised its list of forbidden books in 1583, listing 2,315 works, the vast majority of which were unknown to Spaniards, had never entered Spain, and were in languages that Spaniards could not read. Most of those were taken from lists published by Rome or by the universities. The Inquisition in Spain never went looking for books to censor. Usually, the public brought suspect books to its attention. There was no rule that the indexes of individual countries or regions had to agree. Indeed, it was common for authors to find their works prohibited on one list, but not another. 
the Spanish index was actually more liberal than the Roman index in that it identified problematic passages in books, but allowed publication if appropriate corrections were made, whereas the Roman index would ban such books outright. Implementation of the index was haphazard in Spain, and censors disagreed over books. The index was sent to the bishops who ordered the uh, commissarios, local diocesan clergy who assisted the Inquisition, to work with booksellers to enforce the index. But the index was large, expensive to publish, and not widely available. As a result, it would appear that in many parts of Spain, the index remained unknown. Most of the prohibited books were not available to the Spanish public. Critics, especially booksellers, attacked the index as well. The focus in Spain was keeping books by foreign Protestant authors out of the country. The bulk of scientific and creative literature never appeared on the Spanish index. So, for instance, Galileo's treatise on heliocentrism, Dialogue Concerning Two Chief World Systems, was placed on the Roman index, but not on the Spanish one. Several popes initiated reforms of the Inquisition and the index of prohibited books from the late 16th century through the 20th centuries. Pope St. Pius V, who ruled from 1566 to 1572, a former head of the Roman Inquisition, created the Congregation of the Index in 1571. Benedict XIV revised the rules concerning the index and restricted its purview to theological and religious books. Benedict XIV established a system of checks and balances by which a book was placed on the index only by consensus of multiple anonymous reviewers. Authors were also allowed the opportunity to defend their work against a negative report and to revise a prohibited book to allow for its publication. Finally, Leo XIII, who ruled from 1878 to 1903, established the modern procedure for the review of theological and religious books before publication. First, a book is submitted to the diocesan bishop of the author's home diocese or the diocese of publication. A trained censor deputatus reviews the book and provides a written report to the bishop. If the censor determines there is nothing contrary to church teachings, then a nihil obstat, meaning nothing stands in the way of printing, is granted and the bishop gives the book its imprimatur, which means let it be printed, which provides assurance to the faithful that the book is free from doctrinal or moral error. The granting of the imprimatur does not mean, however, 
that the bishop necessarily agrees with the book's particular contents. The real story. Safeguarding the faithful from harmful literature led the establishment of an index of prohibited books in the middle of the 16th century, as literacy increased and printed books grew in number and circulation. Far from being a form of or Orwellian thought control by a power-hungry church, as is often imagined, the index was intended to help a theologically untrained public avoid dangerous books that could endanger their faith and immortal souls. The index was never implemented universally throughout Christendom, and many books placed on one list were not on others. For example, a Catholic in Spain could read Galileo's work on the Copernican theory of the universe, whereas a Catholic in Rome could not. Although the rationale for censorship of books may be difficult to understand in pluralistic societies with freedom of the press, it was undertaken by the church not to stifle free thought or discovery, but rather to protect the faithful, not unlike a parent deeming certain books and movies to be inappropriate for their children. So, actually, there's... There's even better examples today of similarities, okay? Yeah. When you go to work, your work has internet websites that you are not allowed to access. Oh, yeah, true. You know? And right now, Russia and Google are in conflict because Russia, Russia uh, laws say that search engines have to hook into their database of banned websites that have, you know, that they view as extreme extremists, like terrorists, or yeah. just immoral Things sites. that the Russian government thinks are bad for their society. For their society, and Google won't do it. So there's kind of a, a, a you know, ah. so, it, and that's a, you know, it, this is actually something that happens every day in our lives. We just, yeah. you know. True. So, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's still going on today. You know, just in a different. I imagine your workplace is the same. Uh, I imagine I, it's it's more relaxed than it was when I got there. Like when I first came to American Trim, you couldn't go to Facebook, but you can now. But obviously, they don't yeah. watch on any porn sites or anything like that. Right, anymore. right. But they like like sites to go look for other jobs. They used to ban those, but I didn't get to them now. <laughs> well, like 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 uh. My my work, they have a public Wi-Fi, and then they have a work uh, employee Wi-Fi. So if you're on the employee Wi-Fi, they that's fairly strict. Oh really? But the but the public Wi-Fi, that's very loose. You know? mm. But yeah, that's that's really good that you brought that up because you know I hadn't even thought of that, but that is exactly the same thing. It, it's exactly the same thing, and it's happening everywhere. It's just, and, and you know, and I always, I always go back for like myself when I was going through junior high and high school. The teacher's example of propaganda usually came up during like World War II time, and, it, and they always use such like, like obvious things for propaganda, like like poster boards and stuff. It's like. 
Yes, obvious. This this is obvious, you know. But propaganda is less the effect of propaganda is less obvious. Oh, you know what I mean? And 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 they, I don't know. I always felt like it kind of they they did not teach us accurately as to what what real propaganda was. I mean, well, having, having a picture of that, the it was like like they like they would say the 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 woman. Yeah, with the arm, like you arm. can do it, Rosie, or something. Yeah, they, they, they consider that propaganda. Like, posters like that. Like, that's what they were teaching us of what propaganda was. These, like, promotional wow. posters. Anything that promotes uh, your country. Were, correct. Anything that promotes your, your country was what they, what the, you know, and it was just very easy, I guess, easy example of something. But well, in the reality, it's I really guess, been, I guess, according to the word propaganda, means to propagate, means to reproduce, to... to yeah. To show something, and I guess technically but, that might be true. But, but but when we think of propaganda, we think of something that's incorrect or evil. That's that's at cross purposes to what it, we're trying to accomplish. It's, in life. It, they're more lies. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that, that's what propaganda today is. Telling something somebody like t spreading a lie as if it is truth. And of course today uh, the internet has changed everything. And what is the church doing about it today? Well, uh, we, we have the modern system of the imprimatur. And I am a published author. And both of my books, uh, by the way, I've got two great books out there, uh, My Gospel and More Gospel. Um, when I wrote those books, I did exactly what uh, it said there. I submitted the manuscript to the bishop who gave it to a censor deputatus who read it, made sure there was no doctrinal or moral errors in the book, and I was hoping there wouldn't be, and there wasn't. Uh, in fact, I had submitted my book to several well-educated priests and asked them to read it before I ever submitted it to the diocese. And um, Father Chris Armstrong, who's quite, uh, quite intellectual, he gave me uh, one paragraph. He said, rewrite that paragraph. He said, it's not heretical, but he said, it could be confusing to someone. He said, so clear it up. And so I rewrote the paragraph, made it exceedingly clear what I was trying to say. And, uh, and so that's good. You know, actually, if you're a Catholic and you're writing, you don't want to write heresy. You, you know, I, I would be horrified if I read, if I wrote or taught something that was not correct. I don't want to do that. And, and so, for the true Catholic, it's, it's really a comfort that you submit your writings to uh, a bishop, uh, someone trained in the faith, and they, they go over it. And um, I think the church is very wise. Uh, burn, burn the writings of Arius. Arius was teaching a horrible heresy that, that caused a lot of trouble in the church for centuries. And, and so if you can squelch those heresies, that's, that's great. Uh, because it'll help the salvation of souls. Now, in a pluralistic society, they think, oh my goodness, who do you think you are? Well, 
the fact of the matter, we do think that Jesus was the Son of God. And we do think that he established the Catholic Church on earth. And we do think that it is guided by God, the Holy Spirit. So we really do believe we got the truth here. So when someone comes along teaching heresy, we really do think we should squash it. You know, it's as simple as that. And um, a parent who loves their kids, they don't want their kid to see things that will warp their mind, that will turn them toward evil. And so they protect, they shield their kids from certain things. Now, I can see a modern-day American saying, What? You think you know more than me that I have to be shielded, that I'm your child? And the answer is yes. It's, it's just, it's just modern-day American pridefulness that they think they know everything. And um, we would be better off with uh, some constraints. On the other hand, I, as a rational, mature adult, I kind of bristle at the thought like saying, well, you can't read that book. And actually, when you had the list of forbidden books, when you had an educated person, a member of the clergy or something, they did read the books to see if they were correct or not and to see where the error was or not. So once you're theologically trained enough, yeah, it's okay for you to watch it. I mean, you've got to have censors who can do this. And we used to have censors for movies, just uh, like the Decency League and stuff. Where, In fact, the, the, the bishops still publish a list of movies and their recommendations on who should see the movies. And in our modern times... I have seen religious videos that have the imprimatur at the very beginning of the religious video. Like I think some of Steve, Steve Ray's uh, videos and stuff, they have the imprimatur at the beginning of it. It's like a book. It's a method of instruction. And so you can get imprimaturs on videos. You can get them on books, on pamphlets. Um... I imagine movies, longer things. Um, I've even heard of an iPad app that had an imprimatur. Really? Yeah. How does that work? I don't know, but I remember reading that a few years ago. and I An iPad app that had an imprimatur. Yeah. Wow. I'll dig it out sometimes. You know, I would think websites, you know, although they're changing all the, the time. content keeps changing. Yeah, it always keeps changing. It would be very hard... Yeah, we're in we're in such an information age that I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of impossible. But what you said, companies do it all the time, you know, Google and Facebook, that they're always censoring things. That we're hearing a lot about that right now. And um, you know, so it's it's a part of human life. Mm -hmm. And and there's and there's I think it's quite useful to help protect people from some bad things in life. Yeah, I mean, like with the church, I think that's fine. With, with governments, it gets to be more tricky. Oh, so much more tricky because governments, because governments are not guided by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, 
So, so while, you know, today, like you take the Russian example, today the list of websites might be fine and dandy, but a hundred years from now, it just might be the whole internet, you know? <laughs> you never know. It could become North Korea, you know? Yeah. Like, right. you know, so with, with governments, it comes more, more tricky. All right, our next... Uh... Our next topic, number 21, on page 129. The Inquisition initiated the great witch hunts in Europe and the New World, leading to millions of innocent women being burned at the stake. All right, let's take this one on. On Halloween 1999, a coalition of more than 1,600 pagans called Pagans in Action Council of Truth addressed an open letter to Pope John Paul II, who reigned from 1978 to 2005, requesting in the name of our spiritual ancestors who suffered persecution during the Inquisition that he include them in an apology for the Church's past wrongs to be given during the great jubilee of the year 2000. The pagans had in mind the historical myth that the church hunted down innocent men and women accused of witchcraft and sorcery and burned them at the stake, resulting in nine million deaths known as the pagan holocaust. <laughs> Apparently, the authors of the letter were unaware that the nine million figure had no historical basis and was fabricated by American feminist Matilda Joslyn Gage in 1893. When the Day of Pardon was held in Rome on March 12, 2000, the Pope made no mention of witches and pagans when asking the Lord's forgiveness for the past transgressions of the members of the church. The pagan leaders believed the anti-Catholic myth that the Inquisition was solely responsible for the witch craze that swept Europe several centuries ago. The historical record paints a much different picture. Witchcraft is a diabolical pact or an appeal for the intervention of evil spirits. It was believed this pact with the devil and his minions was sealed with an act of sexual intercourse followed by the placing of a mark on the body of the human agent. Belief in witchcraft was not unique to the Middle Ages having been quite common in the ancient world. The Code of Hammurabi, uh, 1754 BC, mentions witchcraft, and Roman imperial law mandated death for any witch who caused a person's death through spells. Witches were frightening because their demonic work focused on some of humanity's deepest fears. It was believed they could cause sudden illness or death, sexual impotence, barrenness, 
unpredictable and violent weather, crop failures, livestock losses, and demonic possession. The Old and New Testaments contain multiple condemnations of witchcraft, and the first century document, the Didache, commands Christians not to practice magic or witchcraft. According to the standard myth, the church's efforts to suppress witchcraft were taken to extremes during the medieval inquisition, taking the form of witch hunts. But the historical record clearly shows that witch hunting was not a medieval phenomenon. We know it is today with Robert Mueller's uh, special counsel <laughs> activity. Uh, today we have modern day witch hunts, as our president has told us. Indeed, before 1100 there was general skepticism that witch, witches existed. Saint Agobard, who died in 841, wrote a treatise entitled Against the Foolish Belief of the common sort concerning hail and thunder to convince people that those meteorological events were not the work of witches. In the 11th century, Burchard, the Bishop of Worms, wrote a work that affirmed the reality of witches but denied the plausibility of many of the powers and skills attributed to them. In 1080, Pope St. Gregory VII, who reigned from 1073 to 1085, wrote to King Harold of Denmark, forbidding the death penalty for witches accused of destroying crops by conjuring storms. The first recorded burning of a witch occurred in southern France in 1275 during the Albigensian heresy. Hugh de Beniol was remanded to the state by a papal inquisitor for obstinate refusal to renounce heresy and witchcraft. She confessed that she gave birth to a monster through sexual contact with a demon and nourished it with the flesh of babies that she kidnapped. I think this lady wasn't dealing with a full deck. The church became concerned about witchcraft in the mid-13th century when Pope Alexander IV, who ruled from 1254 to 1261, empowered papal inquisitors to deal with allegations of witchcraft and sorcery only if they involved heresy. Inquisitors had asked the Pope whether their mandate to invest heresy also encompassed witchcraft became normally the local because normally the local bishop and secular authorities were responsible for witchcraft investigations alexander's bull was not intended to launch a church sponsored witch hunt but rather to clarify the duties of pope appointed inquisitors the witch hunt craze began in the late 15th century with the publication of the book Hammer of Witches by two Dominican inquisitors, Heinrich Kramer and Jacob Springer. 
who had first-hand experience dealing with witchcraft and practitioners of the black arts. They asserted that witchcraft was quite real and was rooted in actual satanic activity. They described witches as cannibals feasting on the flesh of children and as women who copulated with demons and fly through the air to their meetings. They argued that belief in witches is so essential a part of the Catholic faith that obstinately to maintain the opposite opinion manifestly savors of heresy. Although previous ecclesial authors had affirmed the existence of witches, but downplayed their ability to cause mayhem, Kramer and Springer attributed great power to them. Although the hammer of witches was not a magisterial document, and did not represent the church's official teaching, it circulated widely and was used as a reference for witch hunters and inquisitors. Widespread prosecution of witches in Europe and the New World, especially by the secular authorities, occurred from 1450 to 1700. It reached its zenith during the Enlightenment, not during medieval times, as is commonly assumed. Several prominent Enlightenment figures supported the burning of witches. Thomas Hobbes, for instance, in his Leviathan in 1651, defended executing witches, and the Frenchman Jean Baudin advocated burning witches in the slowest possible fires, and actually served as a judge at witch trials, sending 3,000 alleged witches and sorcerers to the stake. The causes of the witch-hunting frenzy were many, and included various forms of social, political, and economic turmoil. The trauma of the Protestant Reformation was one such factor. Among others were plagues and famine. Calamities like these heightened people's belief in the power of evil. Martin Luther was a firm believer in the diabolic power of witches and his writings spurred witch hunts throughout Germany. In 1538, he strongly endorsed the prosecution of witches, saying, There is no compassion to be had for these women. I would burn all of them myself. Despite the clamor for witch hunts, Pope Urban VIII, who ruled from 1623 to 1644, recommended prudence in pursuit of those who practiced the black arts, but his advice was not always followed. Witch hunts seemed to occur only in certain areas of Europe, and one historian has estimated that three-fourths of Europe never witnessed a witch trial. In Germany, the center of the witch hunting frenzy, witch hunts were more common in the Protestant regions than in the Catholic ones. Most witch trials occurred within the Holy Roman Empire, although Scotland and England, including its New World colonies, most famously Massachusetts Bay, saw the killing of 2,000 alleged witches. Interesting 
The Catholic areas of Portugal, Spain, Italy, Eastern Europe, and the New World were virtually free of witch trials. Although the anti-Catholic historical myth alleges that most witch hunts and burnings were the responsibility of the Inquisition, the historical record proves that secular courts, especially in Spain, were more concerned with witchcraft. Consistently throughout its history, the Spanish Inquisition was skeptical of the reality of witchcraft and did not assert exclusive jurisdiction in such cases and prosecuted very few of them. The first case of witchcraft taken up by the Spanish Inquisition occurred in 1498, 20 years after its establishment. Even at their height, witch trials occupied less than 4% of the cases before the Spanish Inquisition. When alleged witches and sorcerers were brought before the tribunal, Spanish inquisitors focused their efforts on preaching and catechesis rather than physical punishment or confiscation of property. The Spanish Inquisition was far from guilty of any pagan holocaust. Indeed, there are examples of inquisitors saving people from being burned as witches by the secular authorities. One such case occurred in 1529 in Barcelona, where local officials accused seven women of witchcraft. Unfortunately, the local inquisitor favored prosecuting them. But when word reached the Suprema, the ruling council of the Spanish Inquisition, experienced inquisitor Francisco Vega was sent to investigate. Upon completion of his inquiry, Vega fired the local inquisitor, dismissed all charges against the remaining two women. Sadly, the other five were killed by secular officials and ordered their immediate release and return of their property. Vega's behavior was not uncommon among Spanish inquisitors, as illustrated by the fact that from 1540 to 1640, the height of the witch craze, the Inquisition remanded only 12 people to the state for witchcraft and sorcery. 12 people in 100 years. Historians have found it difficult to assess the total number of men and women executed by secular authorities for alleged sorcery and witchcraft, but most agree to a figure of around 50,000. One explanation for the large number is that authorities believe witchcraft was not a solitary activity, similar to heresy, but was conducted in groups. In most areas, the majority of alleged witches were women, usually older ones who were disliked or aggressive, made inappropriate public comments about sexual matters, or were unmarried or widowed. In France, however, it was mostly men who were accused of witchcraft. The Real Story the height of the witch-hunting frenzy occurred during the so-called Age of Reason, or Enlightenment, and it was primarily anti-Catholic and anti-religious writers and civic officials 
who flamed, who fanned the flames of witch hunting both in Europe and in the New World. Medieval inquisitors prosecuted cases of witchcraft only if heresy was also alleged. And for the Spanish Inquisition, in practice, all testimony to the crime of witchcraft was rejected as delusion, so that Spain was saved from the ravages of popular witch hysteria and witch burnings at a time when they were prevalent all over Europe. All right, comments? Uh, well, I mean, my generation, I mean, really the only witch... Uh, we ever learn about is the Salem witch hunt. The Salem witch trials in, and, and in Massachusetts. And that's viewed, first of all, I wouldn't consider that medieval times. Oh, not a, that's in the 1600s. And, and that's viewed as a Protestant. Absolutely. There's so, hardly any Catholics in Massachusetts so, in, so in the my, 1600s. For my generation, anybody who has half of a brain that learned about this would... Yeah. Not associate witch hunts with. Well, I just appreciate the fact that an author clears up historical matters. Yeah. Most witches were burned by Protestants. Most witches were burned by secular authorities who were Protestants. And in Catholic countries, witch burning was pretty rare. And... Um, there is such a thing as Satanism and people who work um, with Satanic powers and influences. And there are certainly Satanists today. Uh, what was there? Uh, 1,600 people on that pagan council that wrote to John Paul II? I mean, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who practice witchcraft and Satanism. Uh, years ago, um, many years ago, I was doing a New Life in the Spirit seminar down in Resurrection Parish in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, one of the fellows there who was taking the class, he wanted to advance in the spiritual life, wanted to give his life to the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was very enthusiastic and, and uh, was loving every minute of it. But he told me, he said, my wife is a witch. And I said, well, you know, she might be bad, but she's not that bad. And he said, no, no, no. He said, <laughs> my wife is a real witch. And she's part of a coven in Dayton. And he said, she is extremely angry that I am taking this class on Catholicism and advancing in the spiritual life. And he told me, I am really afraid that she's going to do violence to me. Um, he said, she is capable of some very terrifying things. Well... I told him, greater is the power of the Holy Spirit than any power of the devil. And so uh, the, the closer he draws to God, the better off he is. But I do feel sorry for the guy. I mean, you're married to a witch. Uh, he's going to have to try to convert her, I guess. Or else there's not going to be a whole lot of peace in that marriage.
Um, how did these people get together? Yeah. Well, he wasn't always as religious as he was okay. at the time. So. Okay, that makes sense. But, you know, and um, and people get uh, people get uh, messed up in things. Um, I had a male student. I can't recall his name at all, but I had him a long time ago, uh, probably at least thirty years ago. And uh, he showed up a couple years after he graduated. He shows up at school one day to talk to me. And he said, Mr. Cadonier, he said, please keep teaching the students to stay away from the occult and witchcraft. He said, because I have just been through hell. He said, you're going to laugh when you find out how I got into witchcraft. I said, how? He said, watching reruns of an old TV sitcom called Bewitched. That was an older show from the 60s or 70s, I don't know. And um, this woman uh, was a witch, but she was masquerading as just a housewife. When she needed to get something done quickly or something, she would just wiggle her nose and, and make it happen. And it was all funny games and there was nothing really evil about it whatsoever. But he said, I would go home after school. He said, and I'd watch that show. And he said, it just fascinated me. He said, after I graduated, he said, I got to the point where I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could actually do things, if you could actually make things happen. So he started reading books on witchcraft. He said for the next two or three years, his life spiraled downward. He got extremely heavily involved in it. And he, and he did not go into detail. He said, but I barely escaped with my life. I barely escaped with my life. And he had come back to the practice of the Catholic faith, which he had left, and he was just very adamant, don't have anything to do with it. And he wanted me to teach the kids not to have, and of course I do, I always teach the students not to have anything to do with the occult or occult practices. I think a lot of people were unjustly accused in these witch hunts and sadly, you know, they were executed. There might have been people certainly involved in Satanism and witchcraft. We have it today. Of course, we have freedom of religion. I mean, you know, as long as your religion is not hurting somebody else, so to speak, you're allowed to be a Satanist all you want in today's world. Um, Last year, there was going to be a black mass, I think, in St. Louis, and they had rented a big arena and everything to do this. And, uh, there was a lot of protest by Christians, and thankfully, I think it got canceled. But um, there are people who are involved in uh, witchcraft. Now, 
and again years ago, there was a woman who came to teach at Lehman, and I think she was from Argentina, either Argentina or Venezuela, a South American country, and she was going to she was going to teach Spanish. <laughs> Uh, which was her native language, and I'm sure she would have been a fine Spanish teacher. Um, but uh, she quit after the first day. Uh, not even the first day of classes. She quit after the first faculty meeting. And um, because something came up, I don't know if she got a better job offer or something, but she she bailed out very quickly. But in the one day that she was there, I had a wonderful conversation with her. And she said that there was a, quite a bit of uh, witchcraft where she was from in this South American country. And um, she said that the, uh, the local witch doctor of her village was extremely powerful. And that he had, and he could put curses on people, and they were quite effective. Uh, she said that she had a first cousin uh, who was like 21 years old. He and another man uh, fell into disfavor with this guy, and this guy put a death curse on them. Within one week, they were both dead. One of a car accident and one of natural causes. They were both in their early 20s. Well, yeah. I will, I will say this though, Dad. You know, is he a witch doctor or is he just hooked up with the, the cartel? <laughs> because, I mean, it is South America, you yeah, know. That's true. This could be cartel action. It is so well, true. I'm, I'm just saying, I mean, you know, it is South America. That's true. My brother Mike uh, went to the Peace Corps in Brazil. He said there's a witch doctor on every corner. It's a supposedly Catholic country. And he said uh, it is so common, so popular. He said, uh, he said at least half the Catholics, when they have their baby baptized, on the same day, they will go to the local witch doctor. He said there's, there's one on every corner. It's like gas stations. He said there's a witch doctor everywhere. And on their day when they're baptized, they take him to the local witch doctor and he does his incantations and casts his good luck spells on them. He said half the people there do it. it the, the practice of the faith is still caught up with a lot of superstition in many places in the world. Um, the, the river monsters guy? Yeah. He was in um, Mongolia. And he was, you know, trying to catch a certain type of fish. Yeah. You know. And he, he was having real real bad luck. And his guide said, Oh, well, there's, you know, a witch doctor that lives over somewhere, you know. And they they went out to see him. And it was kind of weird seeing, you know, seeing that, you know, because they kind of showed some of the stuff that they did. And it was really weird. Yeah. But he did go out and catch a fish. You know. There are, there's God, there are good angels, there are bad angels. 
these spirits are real entities and if you voluntarily open yourself up to these entities you can do some things that you would not be able to do otherwise and I'm not going to give these people you know unlimited power because they don't have unlimited power God Almighty is omnipotent only he has unlimited power and he's infinitely more power than any angel that he created but the fact of the matter is evil spirits do have powers and they can wreak havoc uh, the church has a right of exorcism for a reason you know and uh, a priest friend of mine is an exorcist he has done exorcisms. He was trained in Rome by the chief exorcist of Rome, who did more than 70,000 exorcisms in his life. And uh, there are a number of books out recently on this whole topic. And yeah, there, there is power to some extent available to people through the work of evil spirits whether you want to call it witchcraft or Satanism or whatever. Uh, and as Christians, we should stay away from it completely and um, always stay in the state of grace and use the sacramentals and through prayer, you know, you're, you're good. Uh, never, never open yourself up to the occult. Well, that brings us to the end of that particular lesson, and so we're, we'll close with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, thank you so much for the church that you have given to us. Help the church to be wise in protecting us from heresy and protecting us from all evil. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 